I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to this morning's scripture text, which can be found in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 5 through 11. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, For murderers and immoral men, homosexuals and kidnappers, liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Father, we want so badly as a congregation to use the law lawfully, because We see that shipwreck can be made of churches and ministries and families and lives and eternities when the law is used unlawfully. And so I pray that I would be a faithful expositor of your word today. And that we as a people would grow in our understanding of what it means to be justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, and in doing that, to know the path to a lawful use of the law. Guard us from Satan, now I pray, and may all his fiery darts be quenched in the faith of those who pray. In this service, may unbelievers in this service feel welcomed, so welcomed that they are drawn all the way in to faith and salvation and eternal life. Strengthen your church now through this word, I pray, and fulfill the law whose goal is Christ for righteousness to all who believe and lives of love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the question is crying out for an answer now. And uh, some of you have expressed the question to me over recent weeks. Namely, well, what then should we do with the law? Because... We've been in Romans now for a long time, and repeatedly I have pointed to the weakness of the law and the inability of the law to do what has to be done, to get ourselves right with God so that we're justified, acquitted, accepted. No amount of law-keeping can reverse the verdict from guilty to not guilty. My only hope is that I would look away from law-keeping to Christ 
And by faith in him have his righteousness imputed to me and his pardon cover all my sins. That would be a hope, but not law keeping or power to lead a life of love and sacrifice and Christ likeness. That's not going to come from law keeping. You put a list in front of me, that doesn't change my rebellious heart into a submissive, childlike, humble, tender, loving heart. Lists don't do that. God the Holy Spirit does that through faith in Christ. And so here I've said law can't do what needs to be done. It can't justify. It can't sanctify. Weak as it is to the flesh. Romans 8, 3. I have directed your attention again and again to Romans 7, 4. In fact, I think it would be helpful while you keep your finger in 1 Timothy. We're going to come back there that we go to Romans together. And let me just remind you of a few things I've said, which are the prompting for this message outside Romans. Romans 7, 4, I've taken you there again and again and again, and I will take you there more because I think it is a linchpin in this letter. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That means when he died and by faith you were united to him, his death became your death and you died to the law. And the law is only valid for you while you're alive and now you're dead. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So if you want to bear the fruit of love, you must die to the law, be united to Jesus, and have love come like fruit on a tree. So I've constantly referred to dying to the law, which has raised the question, well, if we're dead to the law, should we read it? Should justified sinners who have righteousness through Christ and are being sanctified by the Spirit even read the first five books of the Bible? Why bother? We're dead to them. And not only that, you have saints in the Old Testament saying things like, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You have those saints saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They are more precious than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Or Psalm 119, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That doesn't exactly sound like death to the law. Not only that, you have that same attitude right here in Romans 7. Verse 22, Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, I delight in the law. And then again in verse 25 of Romans 7, 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, that doesn't sound like death to the law either. Flip back to chapter 3 of Romans. This is really important. Romans 3.20, he's coming to the end of his long indictment of the human race. There's none righteous, no, not one. So he concludes in verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law doesn't come justification. Through the law you don't get right with God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And no flesh will be justified before God by works of the law. No amount of law keeping will get your verdict changed when you are guilty, which we all are. Only Christ, crucified, risen, His perfect righteousness, His atoning, blood-shedding death can turn the verdict around for those who trust Him. And so, what's the ground of our hope? Verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So there's another righteousness than law-keeping that has come into the world. And then this crucial little phrase, being witnessed... By the law and the prophets. So the law witnesses to the arrival of a righteousness other than the righteousness of law keeping. Namely, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here you have verse 21 saying, All right, you go to the law, you can't get justified, you can't get sanctified. It won't do either one. You turn from the law, the law directs you to turn from it, and you go to Christ, and His blood and righteousness become your hope. You trust in Him, you get reconciled to God and justified and made right with Him. The Spirit flows in, the power to love is there. And all that, it says is testified to in the law. So surely then, since the law is a witness to how you must die to the law and turn away to that other righteousness, we don't want to get rid of the law. Dying to the law doesn't mean getting rid of the law. If the law itself is the testimony to its own inadequacy, We need that testimony. Then yet, drop down to verse 28 in chapter 3. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Which raises the question, well, is that going to undo the law then? If you can get right with God without law-keeping then does that nullify the law? And Paul asks it and he answers it. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? So faith in Christ gets you right with God. 
Do you then just throw the law out? Is it nullified? Is it pointless? Does it have no significance? And he answers, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So the law itself is pointing to the goal of the law outside the law, Jesus Christ. The goal of the law is Christ for righteousness for all who believe. And the goal of the law is love, which comes through Christ for righteousness for all who believe, because the Holy Spirit is given and we're empowered by faith in him to be conformed to his image. So I think it's plain that when Romans 7, 4 says we must die to the law, it does not mean die to it in every conceivable sense. We rejoice in the law in some ways, Romans 7.22. We see a witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, Romans 3.21. We establish the law through faith in Christ. The goal of the law is Christ and love through Christ. So let's go for 1 Timothy 1 for clarification of how this works. So now I'll turn back to where we started. 1 Timothy 1. I chose this text because of verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So clearly in Paul's mind, there's a lawful use of law and an unlawful use of law. And what I want for myself and for you as a people is not to use the law unlawfully, but to use it lawfully. He's alerting us here to a great peril. Now, in verses 5 to 7, he has set the stage for why he's so concerned about this. He says that his goal in his preaching is love, and he explains why certain people have failed to reach that goal because of the way they're using the law. So you see what's at stake here? Love at Bethlehem Baptist Church is at stake. Love for your enemies and your friends is at stake here. You can totally botch love if you make an unlawful use of law. Read verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. That's the aim of all that he does. He wants people to love each other. The aim of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now, right there in that verse is not only the goal of Paul's ministry, but the the gospel method of bringing it about. And notice what he did not say. He did not say the goal of our instruction is love through works of the law. He said the goal of our instruction is love, and then he went inside the human being. Good, clean heart. 
good conscience, sincere faith. That's where love comes from. Love comes not from list keeping or law keeping. Lists cannot turn unloving, selfish hearts into humble, childlike, God-dependent, Christ-exalting, loving hearts. It can't do it. And so something's got to happen in me, in me, deep in me. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural thing here. It's a spirit-wrought reality. It's called a clean heart. It's called a good conscience. And it's called faith without hypocrisy. We come to Christ for this. You don't go to law for this. You go to Christ for this. The blood of bulls and goats never cleaned anybody's conscience, Hebrews says. You go to Christ for this. And you cleave to Him like a desperate sinner and hold on to Him as your only hope. And through that hope, that flows into you a cleansing of the heart. The heart is cleansed by faith, Acts 15.9 says. And then the conscience is purified because Christ declares it pure. Apart from works of the law. And out of that newness comes love for people. You want to fill up shoeboxes for kids around the world. You want to take families, hard families, into your life and get your hands messy, loving people that you don't know. Because Christ is in you, shaping your whole mind and your whole heart according to His image through communion with Him. The gospel way to love is in verse 5. And these rascals... In verse 6, we're making an absolute mess of it. Let's read about them. Verse 6. Some men straying from these things. Now, what are the these things? It's the three things mentioned that lead to love. In verse 5. My aim is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned, some straying from these. You see what they've done? They've turned away from the inner work and they're going to the law. And they don't have a clue what they're doing. Boy, but they're experts. They know this law and they don't know anything about the law. They got all 600 and what? 20 commandments memorized, sorted out, organized, Pressed on, like Jesus says, you lawyers, you teachers of the law, you burden my people with a burden so hard to bear. You won't lift one finger. They don't know the law. They don't have a clue what the law is about. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what it says here. Let's just read it. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, empty talk. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. What a devastating criticism. Here are people who want to be teachers of the law. Give me a Bible. Give me a Bible. I teach it. And they ruin it. 
They don't even know what they're saying, Paul says. And they're destroying love and they're destroying churches and lives and families. Because they don't understand the gospel dynamics of life change. Look, we got to take heed to this. This is really important. There are hundreds of teachers putting themselves forward in America for how you should handle marriage, child rearing, financial planning, church growth, leadership, evangelism, missions, racial justice, writing books on them, giving talks on them, going to the radio, fix up your life, fix your marriage, fix you. Here's my question. Are they making a lawful use of the law or not? Do they understand 1 Timothy 1.5? Do they understand what to do with lists? You businessmen, you guys who have some, some managerial thing or some of you women who serve in offices where you have some responsibility for people and getting jobs done. How often do we Christians, we go down to Borders or some bookstore and we, we go to the motivations, the big motivation. And we buy these books, seven habits of every kind of thing. And we read these things like the Bible and we use them to try to get some going in our office or in our family or in our whatever. Do you ask? Do they know the gospel dynamic of how to change people? Do they know what they're talking about when they talk about getting people to act? Do they know? Do they understand the relationship of a pure heart and a clean conscience and faith unfeigned to a life of sacrificial love in whatever form it takes in your vocational life? Or do you even think about that? Do you ask the question, so many Christians in America are just riding the wake of secular motivational efforts. Get kids motivated? Well, how? Well, timeouts instead of spankings. Or uh, do some uh, self-esteem things here. Or just on and on. We say, whoa, read that, read that. And then put a little plastic... Christian on the top of it because you pray before you do it or something. I want you to go deeper as a people. I want you to ask, there is a lawful use of the law and there is an unlawful use of the law. There is a right way to move towards change in people's lives and there is a devastating way to move towards change in people's lives. Successful change. Spare us deadly successes, O God. There is deadly success in getting people changed in the wrong way. I mean, witness the Pharisees. Witness the power of law. Deadly power to get people changed. It works. It works. 
And Christ gets no glory from it, and therefore it is a failure and is not a fulfillment of the law. So I just plead with you at this point in the message, wake up to the many implications of what I'm saying here. It's not a small thing. It's an all-pervasive issue we're dealing with here. Do you as parent or as colleague or as son or daughter or as any kind of person who wants to make your life influential to getting other people to be different than they are, do you know how to make lawful use of the law? Or do you make unlawful use of the law and shipwreck of families, lives, ministries? They want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions, Paul says. So what is the lawful use of the law? Here, Well, follow the thought from verse 8 into the next verse. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9. Realizing the fact. Now, that right there is a signal that he's explaining One foundational fact that goes into the lawful use of the law. Use the law lawfully knowing this fact. That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. There it is. And then follow 14 examples of lawlessness. But we've heard the main statement. Know this fact, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. Now, that's that's a troubling statement, right? What do you do with that? Here we are. We've been taught by Paul and by the law, turn from the law to Christ for justification. You are righteous in Christ Jesus now, by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Now we hear, and the law is not made for such persons. It's for the rebellious. What in the world does he mean? Well, I find great help. In using Galatians 3 to shed light on this because I'm groping for what he might mean when he says the law is not for the righteous. Because he delights in the law as a righteous person. And the saints of the Old Testament meditated on it day and night as righteous people. In Galatians 3, verse 19, Paul raises the question, why then the law? Why was it added? Here you have Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, and the way of getting right with God through justification by faith alone is taught. 430 years later, here comes the Mosaic law with its long lists of do's and don'ts, especially don'ts. 
Why? He told us how to get right with you. And Abraham lived a life pleading with you. He walked with God like a friend. Why are you adding all these details? These, these detailed lists of standards and making everything so legal instead of relational. And he answers that in Galatians 3.19. He says, it was added because of transgressions. Notice he does not say, the law was added because so many of you are righteous and longing to do good, and I want to give you some helpful advice and counsel and guidance. He does not say that. He doesn't say the law was added because of your righteousness. So you can have some guidance in it. He said the law was added because of your unrighteousness, your transgressions. And he lists 14 of them here in 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. So apparently the law has a special role to play in setting a rigorous, detailed standard of behavior and functioned. Now you read on in Galatians 3, and this is how I got help. And functioned to imprison people. Until Christ the liberator should come. Or he changes the image. That's verse 22 in Galatians 3. Two verses later in 24, he shifts the image over to tutor or guardian. Holding a young child who hasn't yet come into his inheritance. Holding him there until the time should come where he inherits. And then he says this crucial thing in verse 25 of Galatians 3. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So now I have no longer under a tutor. The law is not for the righteous. The law is not for the child who's coming to his inheritance. That's what it sounds like to me. No longer under a tutor. And we had, why then was the law given? Because of unrighteousness, because of transgressions. Now those are the two things that we have in 1 Timothy 1. So apparently the law has a function until Christ comes of pointing us to Christ and leading us to Christ and holding us in the prison and under this tutor. And when Christ comes, now that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. The law is not made for the righteous for those who've come into their possession and their inheritance of righteousness. So let me say it like this. If the law has done its condemning, convicting work to bring you to Christ for justification and transformation, it's not made for you anymore in that sense. I say in that sense. The condemning, boxing in, Leading toward the one from whom you can have justification. That's over. So the main point here seems to be in 1 Timothy 1. The law has a convicting, condemning, restraining work to do for unrighteous people. But for the righteous who have come to Christ and found their Righteousness and sanctification in him. 
They come for justification to him. They come for inner spiritual power to him. That role of the law is past. And we no longer look to the law for our power to love. We look to Christ for our power to love. Now, I think this is shown at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. At the end of verse 10, Paul sums up all the kinds of things that the law must be against and restrain like this. Here's the way he sums it up. Whatever, you can see this now toward the end of verse 10, whatever is contrary to sound teaching, so there's the first way he describes it, anything that's contrary to sound Christian doctrine or teaching, and then he adds this utterly crucial phrase, in accord with or according to The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's the literal translation. According to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So here's my question. Well, what produces behavior? That is not contrary to sound doctrine, but is in accord with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Answer, the gospel produces behavior that accords with the gospel. The law doesn't produce gospel behavior. The gospel produces gospel behavior. And so the whole point of these verses 10 and 11 are to say, when you've come to Christ... When you've drawn near to him and died to the law as a means of justification and died to the law as a means of sanctification and you come to the gospel, a behavior that accords with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God takes root in your life and spills over in love. And the law can never do that. You stay dead to the law in that sense. Now, let me close by see if I can restate this as simply as I know how. For this is, for many people, very, very troubling and very complicated. So let me try to say it simply. All you justified saints who have come to Jesus alone, and I pray that it's all of you, and if you haven't, that you come right now, that you turn away from law-keeping and you draw near in your hearts right now to Jesus Christ who alone can forgive all your sins and make you right before God. So all of us who've done that, and we now have a right standing before God, and the Holy Spirit's in our lives, and we want to bear fruit of love, what do we do with Exodus 20. And I'll give you three answers. Stated as simply as I can, given the breadth and complexity of the biblical foundation we have to deal with. Number one, read it and meditate on it as those who have died to it as the ground of your justification and the power for your sanctification. I'll say it again. Read it 
and meditate on it as those who have died to it as the ground of your justification and the power of your sanctification. Second, read it and meditate on it as those for whom Christ is your righteousness and your sanctification. Read it and meditate on it knowing Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my sanctification. Christ is my redemption. Christ is my wisdom. Read it like that. Third, which means, this is the most practical perhaps, which means read it and meditate on it to know Christ better and to treasure him more. Read it to know Christ better and treasure him more. And remember this. We need the whole counsel of God here. Remember this. Christ and the Father are one. To know the God of the Exodus and the God of Sinai is to know Jesus Christ. And if you have been united to Christ by faith in Him, you want to know Him more than you want anything. As Paul says, I count everything rubbish because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I don't want a righteousness of my own based on law. I want Christ and His righteousness. I promise you. You will not know Christ as you ought if you do not meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. If you try to come to know Jesus only by what the Gospels say or only by what the Epistles say, you won't know Him as you ought. You cannot construe the New Testament portrait of Jesus minus the grandeur of the backdrop of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. If you want to know Him, and that's your goal. So here's the difference. Maybe I can use an illustration from the end of the first service. The guy came up and he said, Okay, now practically, I was with somebody on Thanksgiving. They wanted to watch a movie I didn't think we should watch. What could I have done or said that would have been gospel-like instead of law-like? Good question. Very good question. And here was my answer. I said, in Christ, you are free to follow one of two strategies. I don't know the relationships and I don't know how fragile they are. You're free to sit there and watch that. Grieving and praying. And if you think you should not and they should not, 
The way to speak is not, I got a list of movies I don't watch. Or I don't watch any movies. That's list behavior. That's not going to get anywhere. What you do at this point is say, out of the relationship, out of the relationship, you know, I struggle in my life how to maintain a sweet, intimate communion with Jesus. Nothing is more precious to me than that. And I know that certain kinds of movies and certain kinds of music don't help me at all stay close to Jesus. In fact, they present massive obstacles to my walk with Jesus. And I want to stay close to him and delight in him, treasure him and and manifest him. And I know this movie is going to get in the way for me, and I suspect it will for you too. That's a totally different way of talking than list talking. It's the way I've tried to raise my boys, and I'm trying to raise Talitha when it comes to music. How do you young people choose your music? I never said to my boys, these lists of songs you don't have, and these lists of songs you do have. I never, because those are impossible lists to make. I can never figure this out. I say, does it help you pray? Does it help you know him? Do you get done with the songs loving him more? Do you just make you more bold in witness? That's the way we talk. Does it get you close to Jesus? Does it inflame your heart for Jesus? Or does it drag you away from Jesus? Is it a help or is it a hindrance in uniting with Jesus? And that's the way I would commend to you to live your life. And to know him as he must be known, you must meditate on the law of the Lord and the Gospels and the Epistles day and night. I'll say it one more time. What shall you do with the law, you who are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law? Read it and meditate on it. To know more deeply than you've ever known the justice and the mercy of God in Christ, who is our righteousness and the power of our sanctification and love. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, please work this. Be the teacher of this congregation, I pray. I do my best, and it is flawed. Now you are the perfect teacher. Holy Spirit, come and teach them. Apply it to them, I pray. Why don't you stand for the benediction? Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace, gospel peace, gospel peace, both now and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.